of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Heavenly Father, grant us to see that marriage, children, and family are precious gifts from you to be received in faith, and that we are to rely upon you alone to build our homes and protect us. Give us confident faith in your holy word to bless and sustain us. For unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who attempt to secure our future on our own. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We will begin our studies by having a modified look at the congregation at prayer for the week, so as not to leave that out. Uh, today and for the next two weeks, our congregation at prayer focuses on the first article of the Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and it is significant in light of so many of the things that we are going to be discussing over the course of the rest of the year in our St. Peter Option Bible class, um, not the least of which is that God has not only created all things, but that makes him the source of all truth, what is good and what is right. It is God who has ordered the creation, and we are made in his image and likeness the image and likeness of the triune God of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's so much that we will be meditating upon this week and next in the Congregation at Prayer first article that will continue to be expanded upon over the course of the fall and even into the new year. Uh, the psalm for the week is 127. The prayer that I began with is uh, based on that psalm, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And uh, it talks about children being a heritage from the Lord. And so God's gifts of marriage and family and children, uh, we hold up as good gifts, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. The verse for the week that I began after the invocation with is 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. How? that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Now that last phrase is significant, that we might live through him. So through the trials and tribulations of life, we live through Christ. Through the adversity and hardship, through sickness and death, through joys and sorrows, we live through Christ. In the midst of the attacks upon truth and the Christian faith and our way of life, we live through Christ. So we're going to be developing that also throughout the course of the St. Peter option. And I apologize, the intended theme for the week, which never got printed, is love is the fulfillment of the law in Christ. So uh, that's based on the readings for the week. And this, this wonderful hymn, Alleluia, Let Praises Ring, is a hymn of praise to the triune God for our creation, our redemption, and our sanctification. And it is a great hymn of joy, which is a good place to uh, start our St. Peter option. 
I've handed out for you two sheets. The green sheet is an agenda for the next number of weeks. They are listed according to the sequence of topics. For example, today, Christian joy and hope under persecution and suffering. Uh, the next topic, encouragement for Christians dispersed in a world of darkness. Uh, the next topic, life lived as a doxology of praise under trials. In these first weeks, I'm going to be laying the foundation for us in how we are then able to meet the challenge of a decaying culture and society and what our Christian response to this might be. So St. Peter, the St. Peter option, means that we will be focusing a lot on First and Second Peter, his epistles, which were written to the church at large during a period of time in the first century in which Christianity was not an official religion recognized by the empire, but a religion that was assaulted by the Jews on the one hand who rejected Jesus as the Christ, and by many of the Gentiles on the other hand who, who never had the hope of salvation in the Messiah of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but who nonetheless persecuted the church. And interestingly enough, some of the motivations of persecution in that first century had to do with money. Can you imagine that? So if Gentiles felt as if their livelihood was threatened, like if they were making gods uh, to the idol Artemis of the Ephesians, why, if the Christians in their preaching of the gospel and the call to repentance had people who worshipped Artemis no longer worship her, why they'd have no use for these idols and their source of revenue would go down the tubes. So, believe it or not, uh, things like money played a part in the motivation for those who persecuted the church and some of the choices that they, that they made. So, obviously, the, the topic title, Saint, the St. Saint Peter option, is based on the Apostle Peter. Um, his words in First and Second Peter are a stepping stone, and the subtitle, Living as Exiles in a Foreign Land, which is on your green sheet, is the theme that Peter develops throughout both epistles. Um, we're going to sing at Dick Grono's funeral on Wednesday, I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. So this, this deep understanding that we are on a pilgrimage and he develops themes from the Old Testament, the children of Israel as a holy nation, a royal priesthood on a pilgrimage through this world of darkness. But in the case of the Old Testament people, she was at her best when she dared to be whom the Lord had called her to be without apology in her worship, in her confession, and that was very different from the world and the nations around them, and that be, had a missionary character to it as they were attracted into uh, taking greater interest in, uh, in Israel and the faith of Yahweh. Now, 
Why is it called the St. Peter Option? Uh, because there is a, a book, it, was, it came out at the end of 2016, uh, written by Rod Dreyer. He's actually of Roman Catholic background. He is now in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And it's entitled The Benedict Option, subtitle A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Let me read that again. A strategy for Christians in a post-Christian nation. And what uh, Rod Dreyer does is he outlines the disastrous decay of American society and culture and that of the West over the last uh, 500 years. Many of his insights are quite good in terms of analyzing the source of what we find ourselves going through today. It's called the Benedict Option because Benedict was one of the founders of monasticism. And monasticism had a number of key features. Uh, the, the building of monasteries where Men or women, depending on which order you were in, you know, would become a part of these monasteries and withdraw from society and the culture and devote themselves to prayer and to study of the Word of God. Um, the monastic life was seen as the holier life than the ordinary life of a Christian as a father, mother, husband, wife, and so forth. Uh, on the one hand, there's much to commend itself to us concerning monasticism. For example, uh, we could all benefit from an increased, an increased attention to fervent prayer on a daily basis. We see this in the life of our Lord Jesus, who every day in the morning, often before the breaking of the sun, he would go off to a solitary pray, place and pray. And he prayed the Psalter. And then he couldn't stay long because the press of the crowds and the needs drew him back into his calling to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, on his sojourn to the cross and resurrection. So uh, that monasticism held up fervent prayer as an important part of the Christian faith and life, uh, we should resonate with. Also, serious study of the scriptures. Uh, monastic life held that up, to be devoted to regular faithful study of the scriptures. In both sense, you know, fervent prayer and the study of the scriptures is why I prepare for you each week the congregation at prayer. So I think the, the first the answer to the first question you might raise is, what are we going to do? What do we do about the times that we're living? You take up the congregation at prayer. Be calm. Pray the Psalms. Read the scriptures. Meditate the on the catechism. Sing the hymns. But, but, but what are we going to do that? God ministers to you through these gifts in the word, in the catechism, in the church's song. Okay? Um, so those are some of the good things about the Benedict option. Now, so, oh, I wanted to make, mention one other thing. 
a recovery of more serious educational pursuits beyond that of the scriptures in terms of the languages and so forth. Um, uh, that was something that was born out of monastic life. My critique, just a little bit of it today, is that for us as Christians, since the time of the apostles and the example of the, the apostles has never been one of withdrawal from society, but full engagement with society and culture. That's the first thing. Secondly, a, mo uh, a monk or the monastic life is not holier than the life that you live as a plumber, electrician, a garbage collector, a nurse, a doctor, whatever it is that your life's work is. But rather, in the New Testament, we see Christians who are called to faith in Christ, and they go out into their vocations, as Peter and Andrew, James and John did, when they were first baptized and called to faith in Christ at the Jordan River, they did not retreat then. They went back to their vocations until they were, as fishermen, until they were called by Christ to be apostles, to be fishers of men. Okay? Um, his analysis is very good in here. However, one of the things that he blames the decay of the culture and society on is the Lutheran Reformation of the 16th century. So I have come some serious problems with that, as you can well imagine. Um, but it really, leads, it really leads to something that, I, that we're going to be developing over the course of the study. And I want you to listen very carefully. Christians and the church lives by faith in Christ, a faith that is active in love to the neighbor, which includes even our country and so forth. How many of you love your country? Okay. How many of you are good friends and love someone who is not a Christian? Okay. I want you to think about your love for country in the same way as you love the friend. Because he is your friend and you love him, you may not be as prone to want to punch him in the mouth. I'm sorry, David. I don't know why I came over to you on that. Okay, Why? Because you, you love him and you care about him. So it, it, you would like him, what would you like your friend to know whom you love who does not believe in Christ? You'd like him to, to come to know Christ, right? Is your main concern about his life is that maybe um, he lived with his wife before they got married outside of marriage? Is that your main concern? No, that doesn't mean that living with someone outside of marriage and having sexual relations with them is not sinful. It is. But one has to understand the big picture. And is it about making sure he doesn't smoke? He doesn't drink too much, you know, uh, that he dresses a certain way, that he takes the earrings out of his nose or ears or whatever. That's, that's really not the main concern, even though that might be symptomatic of certain things that he believes about himself or about the world. 
Above all, you want him to have an encounter with the love of God in Christ. Out of that encounter with the love of God in Christ, when the Holy Spirit wills, faith may be worked in his heart. God be praised. And out of the gift of faith worked in his heart, there comes the reform of life in the repentant life. I want you to think about that in the same way that you would think about the nation, the country that you love. You love your country, but as the Apostle James said, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means getting so angry at the world. You know, let's pick someone. Who do you want to pick? Okay? Getting angry at this politician or that politician and want to punish them. That does not produce the righteousness of God, nor does it bear witness to the love of God in Christ. And that in no way says that what they're standing for or what they're advocating is right. It doesn't say that. It just simply says that we cannot convert the world by anger, by bitterness. Okay? Everything that we are as Christians, we are as Christians that we might show forth Christ. And we do this recognizing that the Holy Spirit works faith when and where he pleases. And all we can do is confess and bear witness to that. And we leave the results in God's hands. Which means what's characteristic about the Christian and the Christian church living as exiles in this world are things like prayer, patience, long-suffering. At the same time, there is forthright, careful witnessing to Christ. And this is where I hope to change people's thinking that every problem that we address as, Christ, as Christians needs to be in, addressed in the light of the gospel of Christ. So under number five here, I want you to jump ahead in the outline of the, of the lessons. This is where the to everyone and answer a theme comes from. It's from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 in which the Apostle Peter says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Okay? I am not an expert at global climate change, evolutionary theory, critical race theory, ideologies of LGBTQ, uh, humanism, and all of the various forms of tyranny like fascism, communism, and so forth. Nor am I actually necessarily an expert at the popular culture. Now I've read down the list of things under number 6 through 16. But you and I are called to be an expert on Jesus. Okay? To be an expert on Jesus. Because 
the object of the Christian faith is Christ. The object of the Christian faith is not, listen carefully again, reforming society, saving the United States of America. Whether the United States of America exists for 10 years or 210 more years is in God's hands. The mission of the Christian church is not the saving of the American Constitution. As much as I happen to think it's one of the um, most brilliant documents, because it takes into account human sin in what is outlined there as the balance of power and so forth. But, but that's not the mission of the church. Having said that, that doesn't mean that we are not called to be Daniel. What was Daniel? Daniel was a prophet who was taken away in exile by King Nebuchadnezzar of the land of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. And he, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they served in the upper echelons of the Babylonian government. And what's characteristic about their service are two things. Number one, they never compromised their faith in Jesus. Never. So if Nebuchadnezzar or any other ruler called them to do something which violated their faith in Christ and the word of God, with all due respect, O king, we will not bend the knee to this idol. But the second thing that they did, nevertheless, O king, we will serve you in love to the best of our ability for the welfare of the nation. So on the one hand, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not sent there to, like, save the Babylonian Empire, but they were sent there to bear witness to the truth of God's love in Christ. Okay? This must be our posture as well. I am but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. But that doesn't mean that we lock ourselves away in a closet. It means, rather, that we learn everything we can about Jesus and the implications of his person, of his work, of his love, and how that touches every aspect of human life in this world and has an answer. It has an answer to every challenge put up against the faith so that all of Christian doctrine is understood to be Christology, the study of Christ. Okay? So if you look on that green sheet, for example, for, uh, topic number six, and then looking down the list on the right-hand side, truth and order and the beauty of creation. We need to see this in light of the Son of God, our Savior, through whom all things were made. Or the curse of the fall, God's curse of the creation. What is this connection then to Christ and what he has done? Adam and Christ, original sin, the Tower of Babel, the Ten Commandments and natural law, man and woman made in the image of God, the four loves, faith in the Holy Trinity, Christian freedom and the life of the church, all of these topics are an expression of Christology. So going back to the 1 Peter 
Sanctify the Lord in your heart. Who is the Lord we worship? Jesus. Sanctify. That always has to do with the Word of God. Always. Uh, Luther said the Word of God is the only holy thing that we have. Okay? So sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that is within you. It's a defense, and apologia is the, the Greek word for the hope. But notice, what is it called that we're defending or we're confessing? It's a four-letter word, hope, hope. Not, Randy, give a defense for the despair that lies in your heart, okay? Does the world see in us as Christians hope or despair? Love or bitterness? Mercy or anger? And again, to talk about mercy and hope and love in no way is to be implied as acceptance of those things which are contrary to God's word. Not at all. But we have to remember who it was that entered into this world of sin and darkness. The Son of God, our Savior. And he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He touched the diseased bodies of lepers and others. And he brought new life through his redeeming work. So sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Okay. So the St. Peter option to everyone an answer, living as exiles in a foreign land, we will be discussing first and second Peter, Christian vocation and the table of duties. And we begin our Lesson one with Christian joy and hope under persecution and suffering. If you'll turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. I'd like you to put yourself in the shoes of those original hearers. Some of them would have been the, in the congregations of Pisidia and Antioch in Asia Minor, those smaller towns and villages where Paul and Barnabas first brought the word of the gospel, those regions where Paul was stoned nearly to death, drug out of the city, and left for dead, only to revive and recover. Those places where there were, uh, there was a high crime rate, there were bandits that were a threat to anybody who traveled, and especially itinerant uh, preachers. There was disease. Uh, Paul was afflicted with 
uh, a great fever on that first missionary journey and so forth. So there was the diseases that they had to contend with. And then the persecution from both Jew and Gentile. But here, into this group, and then the others, there's other uh, sources of persecution from depending on where you live. But can you imagine being a poor Christian in some of these villages? You believe in Christ, and you get the word from the apostle. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. This greeting, it's a greeting of optimism. It's a greeting of hope. And then Peter does what Luther encourages in the second commandment. You know, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God. There's the negative, so we do not curse, which includes your enemies, or those politicians, David, you don't like. So we do not curse, swear falsely, use satanic arts, look outside of God for help, lie or deceive by God's name, but call upon his name in every trouble. Pray to him in every trouble. Praise him in every trouble. Give thanks to him in every trouble. That's exactly what Peter does here to these scattered, persecuted Christians in Asia Minor as he says then what I've termed the baptismal doxology for an exiled church. And I've had it printed for you on the back of the green sheet for the church living as exiles in a foreign land. It's also, again, printed here on this page. This is a canticle. And uh, at some point down the line, we'll sing it. But we're going to confess it uh, every week. But just listen to it first. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's the first time hope appears in his first epistle. Another one of those times was be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you in chapter 3, verse 15. So he's begotten us again, there's baptismal language, to a living hope. What a picture. Our hope is not, our hope is not dead. Our hope is alive, it is living. Because our hope is centered in Jesus Christ who died and rose again and who lives forevermore. To a blessed hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Are you worried about your 401k, your pension? What happens if there's a total collapse of life the way we know it? We have an inheritance that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us, who are kept in this faith and hope by the power of God, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And we're in the last time. That salvation is ready to be revealed. It is now through preaching, and on the last day when the trumpet sounds, it shall be revealed in glory. 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, that is to say, in this salvation, in this hope, in this faith, you greatly rejoice. That's without qualification to place in time in world history you find yourself. Whether it's a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, a prison camp in China, whether it's in Africa as your village is being assaulted by Muslims who are burning churches and slaughtering every resident of the community. In this you greatly rejoice in this salvation. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. If need be. What does that indicate about who is in charge for his church and for Christians? The Lord is in charge. So it may be needful for you to suffer these things. Um, Hermann Sasse says, great theologian who lived during uh, World War II, was a theologian that then became in exile to Australia. He's talking about the theology of the cross or the theology of suffering. Not only suffering directly on account of one's faith, which is persecution, or, or suffering on account of being in a fallen world. He says, to human reason, we can see no purpose in someone lying helpless in a nursing home, unable to care for themselves. And of course, to human reason, the world has at times argued that they should be put out of, it's sometimes said their misery, but it's really our misery, through euthanasia, because that would be the right thing to do. That's human reason. But Sasi says, to our good, we, to, from our point of view, we can see no good coming from that. But out of this, God may see the greatest good as love is being given the opportunity to be shared and then received. And we learn to believe that out of such suffering, though it's for a little while, we learn to believe this by looking to the cross. Out of what to human reason seemed to be purposeless, God accomplished his greatest good. Now, that little phrase that Peter does, and we'll see this uh, throughout his epistle and elsewhere, he calls it a little while. <clears throat> does anyone know where that comes from in the ministry of Jesus? Not the Garden of Gethsemane, but you're really close, John. It's in the upper room on Maundy Thursday night. And they're about to, they've had a nice Passover meal and they're about to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane to do, of all things, pray. What good is that going to do? It was vital. But he says, a little while, and you will see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. And during this little while of not seeing him, you will be filled with sorrow. But in a little while, you will see me and your sorrow will turn to joy. 
And that little while was not something that was simply like, well, you just got to get past this and then get on to something happier. That little while of sorrow was actually the source of the joy. Because the little while of sorrow was his suffering and death. Without his suffering and death, there is no salvation. There is no resurrection. Okay? In this world, in that same section, he says, in this world you will have tribulation, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So here, in this you greatly rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved, distressed, filled with anguish. <clears throat> now, don't misunderstand anything that we say in this study over the weeks ahead that all Christians ever do, if they're really Christians, is, you know, skip down the street, everything's great, everything's fine. I mean, grief and sorrow and distress uh, is not in and of itself sinful. As long as it's grief and sorrow and distress that is suffered through with tenacity of faith in Christ. So it's not grief and sorrow of despair, but the grief and sorrow of hope and full confidence in the Lord. Even as Jesus had full confidence in his Father, even as he wept over Jerusalem or wept at the death of Lazarus, at the brokenness of the world and what sin had brought into the world. So in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Now according to verse 8, we haven't seen someone, but we love him. Who is this one? Jesus, yes. Listen very carefully. The object of our faith as Christians is Jesus. Who says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. The object of our faith is Jesus, the Son of God who suffered and died, Kathy, for your salvation and who calls you by name and says, you are mine, do not be afraid. The object of our faith is Jesus, the Son of God through whom all things were created and ordered in heaven and earth and who has redeemed the creation. Our faith is in Jesus whose love and salvation interprets for us every aspect of our lives from getting married to having children to what it is to live together as husband and wife in marriage and what it is to live in a fallen world. Everything for us emanates and is centered in Christ and what he has done for us. Whom, having not seen, you love. So I want this time of the St. Peter option to be a love affair not with the United States of America, even though I love my country. Okay? I mean, I sang the National Anthem at Wrigley Field in 2012, because I wanted to do it. <laughs> and besides, they wouldn't pay for our parking lot. But they would let me sing. It's okay. I had to take that. 
But yes, did I sing because I love my country? Yes. Okay? The opportunities and so forth in this country, fantastic. The system of government in this bicameral Congress and this three branches of government and the checks and balances actually for many of the uh, nation's founders did show a, a, a keen understanding of human frailty and weakness. Because if you centralize power, then absolute power corrupts absolutely. But preserving this country is not my ultimate goal as a Christian, as much as I love the country. And this takes us back then to that friend that you love who's not a Christian. Do I help that friend if I abandon my faith so that I can continue to be his or her friend? I don't help them at all. But I love them by being true to myself. I can remember debating atheists in the public high school that I went to. I was as a student, okay? And some of them were my dear friends. And one of the saddest and yet insightful experiences was a fellow by the name of Steve. I will not mention his last name since it's recorded. But Steve, he had profound and deep respect for me, but he was an atheist. And I engaged him in conversation all of the time about faith matters. And um, I was working in the summer out in Jackson, Wyoming, as a waiter in the restaurant. And I got a message, a Steve from high school was trying to get a hold of you. Steve from high school was in the throes of depression and he reached out to me. Unfortunately, Steve committed suicide before I could get back to Steve to talk with him. But I mentioned the story because had I been simply written Steve off, nothing, about, nothing but anger toward him because of his stupid atheistic beliefs, would he have ever attempted to get a hold of me in his darkest hour? Now, the tragedy, of course, is that he took his own life. But the lesson I learned from that was the lesson that James gives, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That we are to see in our neighbor, whether that neighbor is a believer or not, Christ. Because this is what the Father sees when he looks at the world for Jesus' sake. He sees Christ. Not because there's no sin in the world, but because of what Christ has done for all people. Not just the Christians who believe, but those who do not believe. So we cannot, we cannot change a person's heart. And maybe it ought to give you some comfort if not at least relieve the frustration. You cannot change the Congress of the United States. You can't. But all you can do is bear witness to the truth and be Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to them. 
and know well that God will accomplish, accomplish his good through suffering. The Babylonian Empire rose and fell. The Persian Empire took its place. It rose and fell. The Greek Empire came after that. It rose and fell. And then the Roman Empire. No one will ever beat the Roman Empire. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar thought about the Babylonian Empire. Trust not in princes, they are but mortal. Earth-born born they are and soon decay. Naught are their counsels at life, life's last portal when the dark grave doth claim its prey. Since then, no man can help afford. Trust ye in Christ, your God and Lord. Alleluia, the hymn says. So, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now this is where we end today. We have much more on this number one. We got a late start this morning and I gave you the introduction. But we'll talk about, uh, in general, contemporary challenges to the Christian faith today under letter A and then talk further about Peter's joy under letter B. In the meantime, I would encourage you this week in suggestions for prayer, uh, in addition to the congregation at prayer, you may take up Psalm 34, which speaks of the joy of those who trust in the Lord, and, Psalm, and hymn 756, Why Should Cross and Trial Grieve Me? A hymn that is based upon this doxology from Peter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.